0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918 war.com In this chapter we're continuing our reading of five months at ANZAC We'll be doing chapters six and seven in this episode As always have a look at the sub stack at 19141918.substack.com uh, There you get the weekly roundup of news from around the internet and longer form articles when I write them it's all completely free, uh, and you can unsubscribe if you don't like what you're getting, but just give it a go. Right, let's get on with Five Months at Anzac. Everything you hold for is Chapter 6. At Work on the Peninsula. Casualties began to come in pretty freely, so that our tent was soon filled we now commenced making dugouts in the side of the gully and placing the men in these. Meantime, stores for all kinds were being accumulated on the beach. Stacks of biscuits, cheese and preserved beef. All of the best. One particular kind of biscuit, known as the Forty-Niners, had 49 holes in it, was believed to take 49 years to bake and needed 49 chews to the bite but there were also beautiful hams and preserved vegetables, and with these and a tube of oxo, a very palatable soup could be prepared. A well-known firm in England puts up a tin which they term an army ration, consisting of meat and vegetables, nicely seasoned and very palatable. For a time this ration was eagerly looked for and appreciated, but later on when the men began to get stale, it did not agree with them so well. It appeared to be too rich for many of us. We had plenty of jam, of a kind, one kind. Oh, how we used to revile the maker of damson and apple. The damson coloured it, and whatever they used for apple gave it body. One thing was good all the time, and that was the tea. The brand never wavered, and the flavour was always full. Maynard could always make a good cup of it. It has been already mentioned that water was not at first available on shore, This was soon overcome thanks to the Navy. They conveyed water barges from somewhere which they placed along shore. The water was then pumped into our water carts and the men filled their water bottles from them. The water, however, never appeared to quench our thirst. It was always better made up into tea or taken with lime juice when we could get it. Tobacco, cigarettes and matches were on issue, but the tobacco was of too light a brand for me so that Walkley used to trade off my share of the pernicious weed for matches. The latter became a precious commodity. I have seen three men light their pipes from one match. Captain Welsh was a very independent. He had a burning glass and obtained his light from the sun. After a few days, the RMLI were ordered away and we were directed to take up their position on the beach. A place for operating was prepared by putting sandbags at either end, the roof being formed by planks covered with sandbags and loose earths. Stanchions of 4 by 4 in timber were driven into the ground with cross pieces at a convenient height. The stretcher was placed on these, and thus an operating table was formed. Shelves were made to hold our instruments, trays and bottles. These were all in charge of Staff Sergeant Henderson, a most capable and willing assistant. Close by, a kitchen was made, and a cook kept constantly employed, keeping a supply of hot water, bovril, milk, and biscuits ready for the men when they came in wounded, for they had to be fed as well as medically attended to. Chapter 7. Incidents and Yarns One never ceased admiring our men, and their cheeriness under these circumstances and their droll remarks caused as many a laugh. One man, just blown up by a shell... Informed us that it was a hell of a place, no place to take a lady. Another told of a mishap to his cobber, who picked up a bomb and blew on it to make it light. All at once it blew his bloody head off. Caw blimey, you would have laughed. For lurid and perfid language, commend me to the Australian Tommy. Profanity oozes from him like music from a barrel organ. At the same time, he will give you his idea of the situation, almost without exception in an optimistic strain, generally concluding his observation with the intimation that we gave them hell. I have seen scores of them lying wounded and yet chatting one to another while waiting their turn to be dressed. The stretcher-bearers were a fine body of men. Prior to this campaign, the Army Medical Corps was always looked upon as a soft job. In peacetime, we had to submit to all sorts of flippant remarks and were called the linseed lancers, body snatchers, and other jovial names. But, thanks to Abdul and the cordiality of his reception, the AAMC can hold up their heads with any of the fighting troops. It was a common thing to hear men say, this beach is a hell of a place, the trenches are better than this. The praises of the stretcher-bearers were in all the men's mouths, enough could not be said in their favour. Owing to the impossibility of landing the transport, all the wounded had to be carried often for a distance of a mile and a half, in a blazing sun, and through shrapnel and machine gun fire. But there was never a flinch. Through it all they went, and performed their duty. Of our ambulance, 185 men and officers landed, and when I relinquished command, 43 remained. At one time we were losing so many bearers that carrying during the daytime was abandoned, and orders were given that it should only be undertaken after nightfall. On one occasion, a man was being sent off to the hospital ship from our tent in the gully. It was not very bad, but he felt like being carried down. As the party went along the beach, Beachy Bill became active. One of the bearers lost his leg. The other was wounded. But the man who was being carried down got up and ran. All the remarks I have made regarding the intrepidity and valour of the stretcher bearers apply also to the regimental bearers. These are made up from the bandsmen. Very few people think, when they see the band leading the battalion in parade through the streets, what happens to them on active service. Here bands are not thought of, the instruments are left at the base, and the men become bearers and carry the wounded out of the front line for the ambulance men to care for. Many a stretcher-bearer has deserved the VC. One of ours told me they had reached a man severely wounded in the leg, in close proximity to his dugout. After he had been placed on the stretcher and made comfortable, he was asked whether there was anything he would like to take with him. He pondered a bit and then said, Oh, you might give me my diary. I would like to make a note of this before I forget it. It can be readily understood that in dealing with large bodies of men such as ours, a considerable degree of organisation is necessary in order to keep an account not only of the man but of the nature of his injury, or illness as the case may be, and of his destination. Without method, chaos would soon reign. As each casualty came in, he was examined and dressed or operated upon as the necessity arose. Sergeant Baxter then got orders from the officer as to where the case was to be sent. A ticket was made out, containing the man's name, his regimental number, the nature of his complaint whether Morphia had been administered and the quantity, and finally, his destination. All of this was also recorded in our books, and returns made weekly, both to headquarters and to the base. Cases likely to recover in a fortnight's time were sent by fleet sweeper to Mudros; The others were embarked on the hospital ship. They were placed in barges and towed out in a pinnace to the trawler, and by that to the hospital ship, where the cases were sorted out. Once again they were left on the beach, our knowledge of them ceased, and of course our responsibility. One man, arriving at the hospital ship, was describing, with the usual picturesque invective, how the bullet had got into his shoulder. One of the officers, who apparently was unacquainted with the Australian vocabulary, said, What was that you said, my man? The reply came, A blighter over there put a bullet in here. At a later period, a new gun had come into action on our left, which the men christened Windy Annie. Beachy Bill occupied the Olive Grove and was on our right. Annie was getting in the range of our dressing station pretty accurately, and requisition on the engineers evoked the information that sandbags were not available. However, the Army Service came to our rescue with some old friends, the 49ers. Three tiers of these in their boxes defied the shells, just as they defied our teeth. As the sickness began to be more manifest, it became necessary to enlarge the accommodation in our gully. The hill was dug out and the soil placed in bags with which a wall was built, the intervening portion being filled up with the remainder of the hill. By this means we were able to pitch a second tent and house more of those who were slightly ill. It was in connection with this engineering scheme that I found the value of Warrant Officer Cosgrove he was possessed of a good deal of the suaveta in Modo, and it was owing to his dexterous handling of ordnance that we got such a fine supply of bags. This necessitated a redistribution of dugouts, and a line of them was constructed sufficient to take a section of bearers. The men christened this Shrapnel Avenue. They called my dugout The Nut, because it held the Colonel. I offer this with every apology, it's not my joke. The new dugouts were not too safe. Murphy was killed there one afternoon, and Claude Grime badly wounded later on. Claude caused a good deal of amusement. He had a rooted objection to putting on clothes, and wore only a hat, pants, boots and his smile. Consequently, his body became quite mahogany-coloured. When he was wounded, he was put under an anaesthetic so that I could search for the bullet. As the anaesthetic began to take effect... Claude talked the usual unintelligible gibberish. Now we happened to have a Turkish prisoner at the time, and in the midst of Claude's struggles and shouts, in rushed an interpreter. He looked around and promptly came over to Claude, uttering words which I suppose were calculated to soothe the wounded Turk, and we had some difficulty in ensuring that the other man, not Claude, was the Turk he was in quest of. That brings us to the end of chapter 7. Uh, I've got three notes on the reading here that I was just want to throw in. Where, where the authors blanked out certain swear words, I'm just inserting mild ones that convey the sense of the meaning of the, the person talking. Um, uh, next point is, I will not be doing any Australian accents. Uh, I don't think that would just be ridiculous. And finally, uh, there's a little bit of Latin. Suavita in modo means uh, sort of strength indeed, or ability. Uh, And that brings us to the end of chapter 7. Thanks for listening, check out the substack, and uh, see you next episode. Bye!